Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21 together tonight. Spirit-empowered and word-directed. Spirit-empowered and word-directed. As you know, we open to the book of Ephesians tonight because we've been studying it together on our Sunday evening sermons um, when we uh, meet together on Sunday evenings on the first and third uh, Sunday. And um, most recently, we have seen how um, Paul is encouraging the Ephesian believers, this gathered assembly to be imitators of God. And he has walked through this, telling them what um, their life should not look like and what their life should look like. The things they ought to be known by and the things that they should not be known by. And speaking of walking in light and not in darkness and these kinds of matters. And, and then in verse 15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise. And we'll begin our scripture reading there tonight in verse 15 and read all the way down to verse 21 and see further how we are to live our lives as imitators of God, as those who are in Christ, united to Christ. Therefore, um, those who have been imputed with His righteousness and those who are seeking to live rightly for Him, not to earn any sort of favor with Him, but because uh, He has called us to do so. And we're going to look at this idea of obedience to God um, in our text together. But let's begin our reading in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. And then we'll read all the way down through verse 21. Look carefully then how you walk. Some of the different translations say walk circumspectly. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk uh, with wine, but, uh, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, again we come tonight opening your word, praying that you would attend to our time together by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would be convicted where we need to be, that we would be comforted where we need to be, and that we would make application of truth where either one of those convictions or comfort uh, finds us. And Lord, we thank you for the indwelling of your spirit. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truth that we will study together tonight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the background in which I grew up, oftentimes we would hear a lot of talk around the will of God Finding the will of God is one way in which that was expressed. Uh, even though I didn't grow up in a charismatic background, when it came to the will of God, it was this sort of other known, uh, I'm sorry, unknown quality, otherworldly sort of 
quality and quantity that you had to search and pray for. And hopefully God would give you some sort of impression or peace or something along the lines of that. I remember that very distinctly in the background in which I grew up. You know, you need to find out what the will of God is. You need to uh, search out the will of God. This was the kind of language that was used. And typically, this was in and around the idea of, you know, some sort of a life decision or um, these kinds of things. You know, I'm, I'm praying, trying to seek out what the will of God was, as if some sort of a brick from heaven was going to drop and hit me on the head with a note tied to it saying, Jason, this is what my will is for you. Um, But that is not how the will of God is described in the Scriptures, and we'll see this tonight. It is more, in reality, as we see in this text this evening, about the way in which we are empowered by the Spirit. And again, I don't mean that in any sort of uh, way that we think of when we think of sort of the um, uh, -the over-the-top charismatic theology that exists today. But we'll see what this empowerment is. But this empowerment by the Spirit and this direction given to us by God in His Word. So we'll distinguish this idea of what the will of God really is from sort of the um, feelings-oriented or impression-oriented type understanding. Uh, The main idea, the main point tonight in our text is really this. We are to be empowered by the Spirit and directed by the Word Filled with joyful singing and thanksgiving and submitting to one another in the Lord. That's really what this is all about. And it it sets the church on a trajectory uh, that helps us understand how we're to live as individuals and how we're to live as a local assembly as well. Um, Because he launches then into uh, ways in which we are to participate in our lives with one another from that point onward, even as he sort of ends this or ties this together with the next section in this idea of submitting to one another. And so we're going to see this tonight. I want us to see three actions we must take as we live spirit-empowered and word-directed lives. Three actions we must take as we live spirit-empowered and word-directed lives. First of all, we must understand the will of the Lord. We must understand the will of the Lord. And again, we're going to sort of zoom in on verse 17, but this idea, look carefully in verse 15, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil, really sets up this idea in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish. So he says, don't live as one who is unwise, live as one who is wise. Don't be foolish. And we see this statement here, therefore, do not be foolish. Looking back, uh, if this is true, if this is the way that you're to walk, then walk in this way as well. If we're walking carefully as wise and not unwise and making the most of our time, then we are not to act as fools or those who live without reason, but rather understand or gain insight about the will of of the Lord. So let's define a couple of terms tonight that will help us in our study. The fool is one who could be extremely wise according to the worldly academic standards. We think about that. We think about someone like uh, the late um, Stephen Hawking, 
right? Uh, very, um, in the sense of the worldly standards, very intelligent, very uh, wise in the eyes of the world kind of a man. But what does the Bible say the fool is? The fool is someone who says in their heart what there is no God. So according to worldly standards, Stephen Hawking uh, might be considered very intelligent and very wise, but uh, according to the scripture, Stephen Hawking did say there is no God, therefore in God's eyes he is a fool. Now I pray that perhaps before he did pass away, he came to understand his need of Christ as Savior. There is no indication of that, but only God knows. The fool, though, cannot truly deny the existence of God. Romans 1 tells us that they see evidence of God in the things that God created. His power can be seen. But this idea of the fool saying in their heart there is no God means that they live independently of God. And they live independently of God's will. This is why he speaks about understanding God's will. Now, in one sense, we cannot expect the unbeliever to live according to God's will necessarily, but Romans chapter 2 says that um, the uh, commands of God are written on the heart of every man. Therefore, that suppression of truth and unrighteousness is, is an internal suppression. I mean, it's, it's exhibited externally, but they know right from wrong is what it says. Now, their conscience can be manipulated, and in that suppression and in their sinning, they will eventually, um, their conscience will either excuse or, uh, or accuse them, is what Paul says. And, and we, it, 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 as sinners, as unregenerate people, try to wear down the conscience, right, so that it doesn't accuse us anymore of what is truly right and wrong. And we begin to call evil good and good evil. But there is the sense in which they can understand right and wrong. But even more so should it be of the one who is in Christ. So what is the will of God? And, and, and I want to just be careful that we are, uh, I don't want to step on toes too hard tonight, but we need to disabuse ourselves of this notion that God's will is something to be found other than on the pages of Scripture. We don't wait for impressions or necessarily for peace. I do believe there's a peace that surpasses all understanding when we are praying and being thankful. But we rely ultimately on God directing us through His Word and empowering us by His Spirit, which is, of course, what we're going to study tonight. So, we need to understand the categorizations of God's will. There is what we call God's decretive will. That is, that which God has decreed and that which will come to pass because He has decreed it. Now, in theology, as we study this idea of God's decreed or decretive will, we have to understand things like primary and secondary causation. We don't have time to get into all of that this evening, but the point is, is that we want to distinguish between God causing evil and God uh, uh, subverting evil. In other words, evil is that which is opposite of God's goodness, Man commits evil, God permits evil. You understand the distinction? Uh, God permits it, man commits it. Okay? 
Um, and in God's permitting it, he is not saying it's okay. In fact, he deals with that, does he not? Even as we think about the Old Testament and things like um, when uh, Israel is commanded to go in and wipe out a nation, it's not that mankind is neutral and that God is just sending these people in. No, this is God's judgment on those people for their wickedness and their sinfulness. That's a whole other discussion for another time. Uh, But we understand that all that God decrees, whether it is primarily caused by God or secondarily caused by man, in the sense of man committing evil and God permitting it, all is under God's sovereign control for the end of uh, His glory and for the good of those who are called according to His purposes, as Romans 8.28 says. But we, we have some examples of this. You, you don't need to turn here, but um, Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. Um, re- remember, that, that tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that He reveals to us are for us and for our children. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, where it talks about God working everything according to the counsel of His will. You see, we, we are so used to thinking about things in a linear fashion because that's how we live our lives. I don't um, make the decision to walk without putting one foot in front of the other after I, you know, these days, you know, kind of creak my way out of bed. Um, but, uh, you know, we make decisions in a very linear way. God is outside of time. God is not um, bound to time. God is eternal. Uh, everything that has been decreed, we have to use language of time, but we um, understand it to be eternal. Because we can't, I mean, how many of us actually understand what eternal even means? I mean, we just, we think so linearly, you know. That doesn't mean that God does not providentially work in time and space. He does. But we're talking about this idea of a decree that is eternal. A couple of other places you could look uh, to see this. I mentioned Deuteronomy 29, 29, Ephesians 1, 11, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, and Acts 2 and verse 23. If you want to write those down and look at those later. Now, that's one category of God's will. That's the decretive will. The other idea of God's will is God's prescriptive will. God's prescriptive will. That which God commands. And so, um, in, in one sense, we understand that, that God would desire, if we can speak in these terms concerning God, God would desire that all mankind follow His commands. Because what is in those commands is um, joy. It is delight. And it is delight ultimately in Him. We think about even back to the garden and uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, God gives them one command, which I think is an expression of that internal loving God, uh, obeying God and loving neighbor and serving neighbor, that summation that Jesus gives. I think that's what's written on the heart. It's expressed in the Ten Commandments later to Moses. But, but that command in the garden is expressed in this. Um, if you... Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? Die, right? However, if you live according to my commandments, look at all that you can enjoy. Therefore, you will live, 
right? Life was already theirs. Now, there's a question as to whether or not there may have been, after the probationary period, something greater uh, for mankind had he eaten of the tree of life, because we see this part where God bars them from the garden so they don't eat of the tree of life. But the point is this. Don't do this. I'm sorry, do, do this in the sense of the negative. Don't, don't eat from the tree because if you do, you will surely die. But if you obey my commands, you will, what? Live, right? Now, there's a principle of that, even as we think about the law written on man's heart, that is true in the physical sense. If, if you were somebody who was just a moral person, sort of just like in the general idea of life, and you lived according to, let's just say the Ten Commandments, though we know nobody can keep them perfectly, you're generally going to have a fairly good life, right? (laughs) I mean, just thinking in general principles. That's why for years and years and years, the Ten Commandments were printed in our courts, right? And and displayed in it, because that's, that's a code of law that makes sense for good living generally. Well, perfectly if we could do it, right? We can't. But but the point being that that is prescriptive. God is saying, live in this way and generally, understand that, generally life is going to go well. Now, in regard to eternal life, the law actually tells us where Adam failed, you're going to fail. <laughs> so, so there's the sense in which the law uncovers our inability to keep it perfectly. But that is God's prescriptive will. That's where God says, do this, right, and live. And in one sense, sort of temporally, we kind of get how that works out. Um, If I don't kill my neighbor, that generally is going to go fairly well for me, right? If I don't covet my neighbor's things, which Paul says covetousness is idolatry, not having idols in my heart is a good thing. Not worshiping other gods other than God is a good thing. So we talk about God's prescriptive will. I will have you turn over to 1 Thessalonians just to see an example of this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So again, I kind of go back to this example of when I was um, growing up in the background I grew up in, this whole like mysterious will of God. What is God's will for you? And nobody ever really highlighted for me passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the what? Will of God. (laughs) I mean, there it is. Right? God's saying, if you follow this, Things are generally going to be going well for you. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What does God want for a believer? He wants for a believer to be holy. That's, I mean, just at the base of the idea of sanctification is holiness. God desires for us to be holy. Now, we understand that that holiness, that righteousness, if we are in Christ, comes from Christ. It is imputed to us, just as Adam's sin was imputed to us in the negative sense. And we, came, we come to God with an indebtedness to Him and a need not only for our forgiveness, for our, our, our de- indebtedness to be cleared, but we need a positive as well. We need the righteousness of Christ. 
So only those who are in Christ can actually live this out in such a way and say no to sin and and yes to Christ. But God desires for us to be holy. I mean, we could just stop at, at that point in 1 Thessalonians 4, and meditate upon what does that mean? Sanctification, holiness, to be set set apart. God wants us to be set apart. This is exemplified for us in the children of Israel as God not only gives them his moral law, but he gives them civil and ceremonial laws as well that uh, set them apart from the nations around them. You know, some people want to get into, you know, why did God give these uh, uh, ceremonial or, or civil laws like don't eat bugs and, you know, don't eat pork and, you know, these kind of things. Like, is it just cleaner living? Well, maybe, but I like pork, so I'm glad I'm in the New Covenant. Um, I really like it smoked. No, okay. Uh, but but the, the point being that the, the general rule and idea is that it would set them apart from the nations. The nations would look at them and say, well, why don't you eat bats like we eat bats? Well, because our God, Yahweh, told us not to eat bats. I mean, who really wants to eat a bat anyway? But I, I, I do like pigs, so I guess that argument can be maybe somebody really likes bats. But, but look at what it says here. This is God's will, your sanctification, your holiness. And what is that? How do I remain holy? How do I remain set apart? That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Here we go. Here's that dividing line. Right? You are to be holy. You are to be set apart. Don't act. Don't, don't um, indulge in, in sexual sin like the Gentiles. Who do not know God. Boom! There it is. Right? If you live... In opposition to God's will, it's as you're trying to live independently of Him and you are a what? A fool. As if God doesn't exist. They do not know God. And see to it that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. What is the purpose of that? There will be consequences if you... Do not obey God. Now, what are those consequences in this case? Those consequences are not condemnation because we're, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But things like, what does the proverb say? If you go after the strange woman, it's as if you're putting coals of fire in your lap. Right? I mean, there are consequences for Sexual sin. I mean, that, that could actually be referring to things like STDs and things like that. God is the judge of these things. What is God's will? What is His prescriptive will? Well, our passage tonight deals with that as well, doesn't it? It deals with that as well. So we don't need to Wait around wondering what the will of God is. He tells us in that which he doesn't, um, he tells us what his will is. And those things where he doesn't specifically say like, who am I supposed to marry? You know, which, which college am I supposed to go to? Should I or should I not bar, bar, you know, buy this car? We use the wisdom that God has given us and in our obedience, it helps direct our steps. Proverbs 
talks about this. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Yeah, but I don't know, you know, I, I need, you know I'm going to flip through the Bible and just put my finger down and, and assume that that's, you know, if I land on yes, that's what God wants me to do. If I land on no, that's not what he wants me to do. That's not what he's calling us to do, you know. That's, um, that's pagan. That's, that's the way the pagans think about the gods, Right? If I do the right thing, he's going to reward me. If I you know, toss a coin up, this is how... No. We use the scriptures. We use godly standards. We use wise counsel and all those kinds of things. God wants me to be obey. He not, he, I mean, just think about this idea of, uh, in regard to uh, buying a new car. God wants me to be wise. If I can't afford the $40,000 car, then I shouldn't buy it. You know, um, and, uh, you know, thank goodness God gave us consumer reports so we can find out which cars are better and best, right? No, I mean, we use wise, it's a financial decision. God tells us to be wise with our finances, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. So in understanding the will of God, he is not talking about searching it out. He's talking about doing what it says. That's the idea here. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Not search it out, not try to determine, discern. No, understand what the will of the Lord is. And here it is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So this is our second point. We must be controlled by nothing other than the Spirit of God and His Word. We must be controlled by nothing other than the Spirit of God and His Word. So do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The idea here is loss of control. Loss of control. What does drunkenness do? Drunkenness causes our minds to no longer be in control of ourselves. And in that, he says, is dissipation or debauchery. Ungodly lifestyle flows from letting things control us other than God, other than His Spirit. Now, you know that the Scriptures don't forbid the drinking of alcohol, but it does forbid drunkenness. Why? Because it's a turning over of control. So we could, this is just the most obvious one, is that... um, Consumption of alcohol to the point of drunkenness is a very external, well-known way of losing control. I, I had a um, state trooper, a former state trooper who was also um, one of my teachers, and he said one time uh, they had pulled over a guy who was you know, drunk driving, and they have this hold called the cum hold. And what it is is you take the person's wrist and you put it under your arm, your weak arm, and with your strong arm you bend their wrist to the point of where it hurts so badly they can't do anything but follow you. They, they, are, they are forced by that pain to follow you. And he said, this guy was so drunk. I can't remember if it was him or, or his partner. He did that so hard the guy couldn't feel it. He accidentally broke the guy's wrist. And the guy didn't flinch. His receptors were completely drowned, if you will. 
And so there's a loss of control. But this isn't just alcohol. This is anything by which we are controlled other than God, His will, which we see, or His Spirit and His will, which we see in the Scriptures. This can be, you know, if, if we want to think about in regard to God's moral law, anything that takes us away from doing what God has called us to do. Lust, covetousness, um, murder. James 4 says we don't get what we want, so we kill one another. I think he's using hyperbolic language there because I think he's actually thinking about what his uh, brother Jesus said, that if we you know, hate someone in our mind, it's as if we've killed them. So what is controlling us? Paul says, instead of being drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, oftentimes we think about being filled with the Spirit um, we automatically, again, have been sort of conditioned to think about uh, charismatic uh, definitions. And, and by charismatic, I mean the charismatic theology of being filled with the Spirit. So therefore, we kind of back away from understanding what this means. We kind of say this, isn't, this is what it doesn't mean rather than this is what it does mean. It's not like a filling of a glass with water. We're either more or less filled like a glass of water, it actually carries more the idea of like filling a sail with wind is the idea. When I worked at a a camp in Florida called Camp Horizon, fresh out of high school, one of the activities that campers could take part in was sailing. I had never sailed, but enjoyed the idea of trying out a Hobie cat. That's typically how we would, would go sailing. You guys know what a Hobie cat is? It's the two pontoons with a um, a, a, a tramp, a lean type thing in the middle with a, a sail that comes up out of the uh, middle of it. One of my friends was a very experienced sailor. And I believe the first time uh, he ever took me sailing was when a storm was approaching. <laughs> and we were in the Harris Chain Lakes in uh, Florida, which everybody thinks that Lake Okeechobee is the uh, Lake Okeechobee. Right? Is that the big one at the bottom? I think that's the biggest body of water. Actually, the Harris chain of lakes, because they're all connected, is the largest body of water. And storms would come up very, very quickly uh, off of the east coast over to, this was in Leesburg, Florida, and uh, they would just blow up really, really quickly. Um, and uh, this, the exhilaration of sailing on a small craft with heavy winds uh, behind you cannot be described. The force at which the wind carries you is amazing, powerful and scary at the same time. It also is interesting that you must obey the rules of sailing to steer the craft and keep yourself alive and traveling in the right direction. You can't just willy-nilly get out there on the lake and not know what you're doing. You know, you could have a boom come across and hit you on the head if you don't know what's happening and knock you into the water. Uh, We would have... Kids capsize these things all the time, and, and, and the mast would get stuck in the sand, and it, would, it was a pain to get those things turned back over. But Tom, my friend, was very experienced, and we got to the point where there's, you know, you see that in the movies where there's one pontoon sort of in the water and the other one's kind of out of the water because the wind is blowing so hard, and you're having to lean to make sure it doesn't flip. You have to know this. You have to know the rules of sailing in order to steer the craft and keep yourself alive and traveling in the right direction. This is a very good picture of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. 
We are not more or less filled with the Spirit. It is to what degree are we letting or allowing the Spirit to have control over our lives? This is the central premise of our passage. It is not a not this but that sort of, I'm sorry, it is a not this but that sort of passage. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The question is, you know, how much control, and this is from a very human perspective, how much control uh, does God have in my life? That's the idea. Am I... We're going to see in a minute what exactly this means because it's helpful to actually see this next part. Because he then says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart with the Lord. Well, what is this? Why does he all of a sudden go from being filled with the Spirit to the spiritual songs, hymns, and, and such? Keep your finger in Ephesians and turn to Colossians. Many of you probably know that Ephesians and Colossians are very parallel books. A lot of what Paul says in one is also stated in another. And if you've been around FBC as long as I have, um, this is the book we went through together first, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Notice the parallels here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now notice this. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What's the parallel with being filled with the Spirit according to Colossians 3 and verse 16? Let the what? Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Though I love my charismatic brothers and sisters and I abhor the extreme versions of charismatic theology, this is the missing piece. The Spirit of God filling us cannot be absent from the Word of God dwelling within us. Those two things are indistinguishable in the Christian life. I cannot receive instruction from God without being in His Word, without hearing from His Word. And it is the Word and the Spirit together, working together, that directs my life. It is the conviction of the Spirit, it is the comfort of the Spirit that directs my life. Instead of looking for some special move of the Spirit in our lives, you can turn back to Ephesians now. We are letting the Spirit of God direct us by the Word of God. And with that, the outflow of that is the Word of God that we speak to each other. We speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord with thanksgiving. One of the fruits of being in Christ is the desire to praise the Lord and to sing to Him and to sing the great truths of God to each other. Um, The great part about gathering together on Sundays is being able to sing together. One of the great parts is being able to sing together. When you sing, you're singing to God, certainly. We're singing, though, with one voice, and we are reminding one another of great truths when we sing. That's why the content of our 
Songs need to be so rich with theological, biblical content. This is within the context of the local church. That's who Paul is writing to in Ephesians and Colossians. Whether you're gathered as a church to sing together or seeking to live life as the body, encouraging each other in these ways throughout our lives, it is about discipleship and pointing each other back to the truth of God's word. And that's what we're to do. Spirit-directed life, spirit-empowered life, directed by the Word of God. And there is a general attitude we must have in pursuing all of this, which leads us to our final point. Point three. We must be thankful and submitted to one another. We must be thankful and submitted to one another. What do we have that is not from the Lord There is nothing that we have that is not from the Lord. Look at what he says there. Even as we're singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with our heart, we're giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, even as we think about this um, world in which we live, I think it's the prophet Joel who says, should we receive good from the Lord and not evil. Not Again, not that that is from Him. Think about Genesis 50. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. There is nothing that does not pass through the Father's hands. There is nothing good that isn't given directly from the Father of lights, James says. We must be a thankful People, I find it so interesting that many times when it talks about singing or speaking truth or praying in the scriptures, along with that often or always comes thanksgiving. That we are to be a thankful people. Everything is being worked out to accomplish His will in us, His good for us, for His glory. It goes back to this idea, we obey Him. We do not wait around for a feeling or some brick to fall from heaven with his will tied to it. We let the word of God lead us as we obey it and we sing to him and we are thankful no matter the outcome from our human perspective because we understand the outcome God desires, which is us being conformed to the image of Christ. And he will, listen, he will forge that in all kinds of ways. You know, uh, Paul says in Romans 12, we're not to be conformed to the image of the world. That means don't be pressed into the mold of the world. But we're being conformed, Romans 8, to the image of Christ. And that pressing into the mold requires sometimes stress and pain. Think about the refiner's fire that sometimes is spoken of, the heat to pull up the dross, to scrape away that dross. God desires that we be conformed to His image, and that comes in all kinds of ways. You know, our culture's posture is generally one of entitlement rather than one of thanksgiving. I saw a statistic actually earlier tonight that said if you have a net worth of at least $4,000, 
$4,210, you are wealthier than 50% of the world population. If you have a net worth of at least $4,210, you are wealthier than 50% of the world population, the world's population. That's just monetary. We have so much to be thankful for. I look at your faces. I'm so thankful for you. You guys are God's gift of grace to me. Every one of you in a special kind of a way. That's true of you toward one another as well. Yes, even siblings back there. You are. You're God's gracious gift to one another. We have so much to be thankful for. We can, you know, we kind of have these little colloquialisms, you know, we thank God for our health, you know, these, these kind of things. But really, you know, I remember one of our dear folks here in this local assembly who lost a son tragically. It, it broke them in many ways. But I remember hearing the story of the husband years later as they still struggle with pain, looking at his wife and saying, Dear, are you able to thank God for this? It's a hard question, but a necessary one. Certainly not thankful that they had lost their son's life, lost their son to a tragic accident. But even looking at the very difficult things of life and saying, Lord, you have shaped me and you have molded me through this. Thank you. You know, John Piper wrote that famous book, Don't Waste Your Life. And then he got cancer. And he wrote a little follow-up called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Can we be thankful in all things? You know, I encourage you to do just as an exercise Maybe sit down in the next couple of days and just write down the things that you're thankful for. The good things and the hard things. Give thanks with a grateful heart. This then leads us to a kind of living in which we submit to one another as we see in verse 21. As we are singing, making melody in our heart with the Lord, teaching each other, addressing one another with truth, giving thanks always for everything, we recognize that this will of God is that we would submit to one another as well. This speaks to the mutual edification and service God calls us to concerning one another. In the local assembly, and we're going to see how this works its, its way out into the family You guys are familiar with what comes next in Ephesians 5 and then into 6. This is is the life of the church. It's foundational that families be this way to one another. But in a sense, we're one big family on Sunday mornings as a church, gathering together, whether Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday nights, whatever it may be, and throughout the week. You know, I have good friends uh, around this country, some of them around the world. But there's nobody I'd rather spend time with than with FBC. 
There's nobody I'd rather serve than right here in this assembly. Well, Jason, you know, you get paid to say that. No, I mean, I do get paid, but it's not the reason that I love you. It's not the reason I want to spend time with you. It's not the reason I want to serve you. I pray that that's the heart of all of us. And Jesus says, as I have done to you, do to one another. He goes and he washes his disciples' feet. He has led with that example, which of course was a very small reflection of what he was about to go and do on the cross. No greater love has any man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And I call you my friends. First John says that that's what we're to do. We're to lay down our life for the brethren, John says in that epistle. Are we so thankful and so focused upon the truth and so spirit-empowered and word-driven that we look at one another and say, it is my joy to serve you. It is my joy to be subject to you because Christ subjected himself in such a way as we'll see in Ephesians 5 to give his life for the, the bride as we talked about this morning. Let's live in these ways knowing what God's will is because he tells us. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the opportunity to love you and obey you, Lord. Your commands are not burdensome. In them, in, in fact, we find delight. And you desire our joy. And through that obedience, Lord, worship of you as a holy, righteous, just, gracious, merciful, forgiving God. So let us love and obey you and let us love and serve one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.